Good morning. Good morning. All right, I'll do the same thing again. Um, now, I was raised and came to faith in a black church. And Four East is not black yet, <laughs> but we are yet working. So y'all are going to have to indulge me and talk back to me this morning. Amen. Amen. All right, there we go. Nine o'clock even got with it a little bit. I was, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Uh, so I bring you greetings from your little sister on the east side of town. Uh, it's been a joy to sit and serve under Josh. Uh, so far, he's done a great job of leading that congregation and shepherding uh, my family and I. Um, this moment is a little poetic. Um, three years ago, we, uh, we came and I preached here, and my wife was pregnant with our first, and uh, we did not know what would come of our relationship with Four Oaks. I was serving along, um, under my father and alongside him at Unity Baptist, and I uh, had no idea or honestly desire uh, to come to Four Oaks, and now I am church plant resident at Four Oaks East. And so uh, this moment is a little bit of coming full circle because this is where it kind of all started. Uh, so it's good to be with you all this morning. I want to begin uh, our, our sermon today uh, which I would title Sovereign Solutions in Our Suffering by reading a story from Paul Tripp's book on suffering. He says, it was a surprise visit by an unwelcome visitor, like it is for so many sufferers. I didn't know that day that Mr. Hardship would knock on my door, barge his way in, and take residence in the most intimate rooms of my life. And I didn't have any idea how his presence would fundamentally change so many things for the long run. I watched him go room to room through my life, rearranging everything, wondering what things would be like if and when he finally left. If I could have, I would have evicted this unwanted stranger, but I failed at all my attempts to boot him out the door or deny that he had taken residence in my life. I spent way too much time trying to figure out why he had knocked on my door and why he had chosen this particular moment, but I never got any answers to my questions. Once I realized that I couldn't kick Mr. Hardship out of my life, I gave myself to trying to understand how to live with him or around him. But his presence made me feel like an actor in a drama where everyone had a script but me. I felt unprepared and unable. Not just the first day he entered, but day after day. Sure, I had known Mr. Hardship was out there, and I'd heard stories of how he had entered other people's doors, but somehow I didn't think it would happen to me. Embarrassment washed over me as I thought of the silly platitudes and empty answers I had casually given people when they'd been caught in the confusing drama I was now in. And I thought about how foolish I'd been to think this unwanted stranger, who somehow in some way enters everyone's door, would, for some reason, omit mine because I didn't have the power to control or to make Mr. Hardship leave, I ran to the place where I have always found wisdom and hope and rest of heart. I ran to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in so doing, into the arms of my Savior. As I dove into the narrative of the gospel, which is the core message of God's word, I realized something profoundly important and wonderfully comforting. I wasn't unprepared after all. The message of God's sovereign control over me and my world, the gospel's honesty about life in this fallen world, the comfort of right here, right now, presence and grace of the Savior, and the insight into the spiritual world that rages in my heart had all prepared me well for the entrance and presence of this unwelcome stranger. 
Paul Chip talks about in that story, the power of God's sovereignty to make sense and sustain us in our suffering. And uh, if you've been following along for any length of time, we've been talking about the story of Joseph. Story of Joseph about how God meant good. A preaching icon of mine, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., is prone to say that for every New Testament doctrine, there's an Old Testament demonstration. And the New Testament doctrine in, in Romans 8, verse 28, the verse we have on all of our calendars somewhere, pinned to our doors, sitting on our desks, is that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that New Testament truth finds an illustration in the story of Joseph where we see a lot of things working, seeming like they're working for the bad, but they actually work out for the good. And up until this point in the Joseph story, we are seeing inklings and pictures and, and sort of hints at what exactly it means for this story to mean good for Joseph. But this chapter is the story where it all comes together. It's the, the climax of the story. And the truth that we see here, so our big idea for today is that our suffering finds its reason and its redemption in light of God's sovereignty. Our suffering finds its reason and its redemption in light of God's sovereignty. We want to see this in this passage in, in sort of three movements. The, the first movement that God has an aim for our affliction kind of gets at that dominant truth. And the last two sections will show us kind of what this end story will be like when God reaches his goal for our suffering. So the point number one is that God has an aim in your affliction. Now, just to reorient us in the context, think about the previous chapter. Toward the end of the chapter, we've seen this uh, evidence of this massive change in Judah uh, and in the brothers, right? Judah has demonstrated real change and sacrificial love by deciding to lay his life down for his brother, Benjamin. Earlier, in the very beginning of the Joseph story, when the brothers are about to kill Joseph, it's Judah who says, now, y'all, why would we kill him? What good is that? We could just make money off the brother and just sell him into slavery. So he sells his brother for a profit. And in the next chapter, in chapter 38, he breaks his word to Tamar and seeks to exploit her vulnerability by not keeping his word to give her his son as her husband. But in chapter 44, Judah flips both of those things, and we see that God really has been at work in Judah's life and in his heart and in his character because he keeps his word to his father. When he told his father in chapter 43, I will be a pledge of Benjamin's safety. And he lays his life down by substituting or trying to substitute himself for Benjamin. Joseph had set Benjamin up and basically made it to where Benjamin was going to have to be held captive as a prisoner. And Judah's like, don't take Benjamin, take me instead. So when we get to chapter 45, Joseph is so moved that he can't hold back his tears. And Joseph has been trying to do what a lot of us do, right, when you may be giving a public speech at a wedding or at a celebration. And, you know, one of my sisters always like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And he's just like, you're not even going to get two words out of your mouth before you start choking up, right? <laughs> and all those other times, you know, what do you try to do in those moments? You try to compose yourself, right? So all these other moments, Joseph has either composed himself or he's escaped. To, and he cries it out, and then he's like, okay, I'm clean myself up, get back together, and now I'm in front of you. But this time, Joseph is so moved by Judah's substitutionary love that he can't hold himself back any longer. He kicks everybody out of the house except for his brothers, and he reveals himself saying, I am Joseph. Now, this moment is slightly funny to me because 
His brothers thought Joseph was dead. Chapter 42, verse 22, when, when things are starting to hit the fan and they realize that God is disciplining them for what they did to Joseph, Reuben says that there has now come a reckoning for his blood. So they really thought Joseph was dead. So this person they thought was dead is now staring them in the face. And so they effectively are looking at a ghost in their minds. And not only that, so many things have happened because of this reckoning that they're not aware of, that there has been fear. In chapter 42, the, the way that Joseph has set them up, they don't know it's Joseph setting them up, but they know that something bad is happening, and it's because of what we did to Joseph. In chapter 43, Joseph throws a party for them, and they think that Joseph is trying to enslave them. They're so afraid because they know that they are reaping what they have sown. And so now in this moment, coupled with the, the shock of seeing somebody they thought was dead, is this sudden fear that they have reached the climax of their condemnation. And it can only go downhill from here. So when Joseph says, I'm Joseph, they say nothing. So Joseph repeats himself saying, I'm Joseph, come here, look at me. But then he says something that astonishes me. He says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Don't be angry or distressed. Joseph has suffered for decades, literal decades, because of what his brothers did to him. They robbed him of family, of dignity, of safety. But Joseph says, don't be angry or distressed. And I'm not going to lie, Joseph is more sanctified than me. Because if you sell me into slavery... You robbed me of family of safety, of dignity for decades. I'm going to want you to feel a little bad for what you did. Amen. I don't know. Maybe I have one or two witnesses here on Sunday morning who are not too holy to be in church, who understands what it's like when somebody has been slandering you and talking bad about you behind your back, and then they get exposed. I say, I want you to be kind of embarrassed because of what you did to me. But here is Joseph saying, don't be angry or distressed. And I think it's, 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 it's illustrative that a heart fixed on forgiveness is more concerned with reconciliation than retaliation. And so Joseph doesn't say, I hope you hurt for how badly you hurt me, but rather I hope there's healing for your unrighteousness. And actually, think, I think here part of the reason he's revealing himself because he sees that their unrighteousness has been healed and that now there can be healing in their relationship. That's what Joseph is concerned about. But another reason he can say, don't be angry or distressed is because of what he says. He says, for God sent me before you to preserve life in verse five. There's this obvious theme that pops up in the next three verses. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. There's famine in the land for two years, five more years coming. And then in verse seven, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So I think Joseph is trying to prove a point to us. It was God who sent him into his suffering. He sees his life from the perspective of God's providence, and it enables him to forgive his brothers and see that God's hand is ultimately behind all things, including his suffering. He almost speaks of his suffering in like missional or missionary terms. 
This, this statement, this phrase, even in the Hebrew that God sent, is very similar to all the phrases where God sends a prophet. We, some of us know the story of Isaiah and the vision that he had of God's holiness. And after Isaiah receives redemption and the, the, the angel touches his lips with the coal from the altar, the next thing that God says is, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. But when God is asking about suffering, saying, whom shall I send? As quiet as it is in here right now, that's as quiet as it would have been in the throne room. Here I am not. Do not send me. But God sent Joseph into slavery to preserve life, to save a remnant for the sons of Israel. And I wonder when this realization hit Joseph. I can imagine that as his brothers have thrown him into the pit and they are deliberating on whether or not they're going to murder him or ship him off to slavery, He's probably not in there saying, it's all good. God's going to do something great right now. And some of us know what that's like when that moment of suffering hits, when you get that bad news, when you get that bad diagnosis. The the next thing in your mind is not, it's all good. God's at work. The first thought is probably, come on, man, not right now. Not this again. But at some point, Maybe it was Potiphar's house or it was prison or maybe it was that moment he interpreted the dream and Pharaoh said, you are going to be my right hand. Somewhere in there, Joseph began to see his life as an arrow shot by the bow of God's sovereignty, aiming at the preservation of life in Egypt. He realized that God has an aim, had a name in his affliction. And God is not an accidental art- artist. God is not grabbing paint and just kind of flinging it on the canvas and just like, we're going to see what comes of this. But God is like the skilled sculptor who takes a block of marble and it might look like that, that artist is just doing violence to that block of marble. Like he's just hacking at it. Pieces are flying all over the place. But he's being very deliberate. He is sculpting. He is shaping. He is molding. He is shaving. He is forming it into what he wants it to be, into a masterpiece. And that's how God works. And, and before I... I'm going to start using this term providence. I probably already used it a couple times. And if you're not familiar with what the term providence means, when we speak of God's providence, what we're referring to is the way that God governs and directs every facet of life and of existence and of history from the most significant and wide ranging event to the most insignificant and minute detail. God is governing and upholding it all, and it's all happening according to his sovereign decree and according to his plan. That's what we mean by his providence. And so God's providence here is working on multiple levels. God's providence is at work in Joseph's life and in in Joseph's heart. He, through this entire process, has been proving himself to Joseph and proving to Joseph that Joseph can trust him and that Joseph can walk in his path. He is conforming Joseph to his own character. And he is getting Joseph to the place where he wants Joseph to be to fulfill the purpose he has for Joseph, which is to preserve life. But God's providence is also at work on a a corporate and a national level. Because had Joseph not been sent into slavery in the first place, there would have been no advisor for Pharaoh to prepare them for these seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. So because Joseph gets sent into slavery, Egypt gets saved from being wiped out by a famine. So God is at work on the individual level. He's at work on the, on the 
sociocultural and national level, but God is also at work on a redemptive historical, salvation historical level. Because he mentions this term over and over again. He says that, that God wanted to, uh, to save for the sons of Jacob a survivor, to leave for you a remnant, he says, multiple times. And it's like, well, what's so important about Jacob's family? It's other families that probably suffered in this family. What's so special about them? And the thing that's so special about them is that God had made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and promised that it was through Abraham's family that he was going to restore his reign of blessing over this sin-cursed world. And Jacob's sons are Abraham's great-grandsons. And so if Jacob's family gets wiped out, all of us are in trouble because no Jacob, no Jesus. But that gets preserved all because Joseph gets sold into slavery. And so God is at work in his providence on all of these little levels. And I'm not going to lie. Like for me, hearing this truth is unsettling. Because it means that it's when I suffer, when you suffer, when you get that bad diagnosis, when you are being hit by pain after pain, when you have that deep sense of loss, God is the one who sends it. And that's an unsettling truth because it's like this is supposed to be the God who loves me, who has compassion and mercy and cares for me, and yet he's sending this suffering. It leads us to say with Jeremiah, God, you deceived me. You deceived me and I was deceived. You overwhelmed me. You overpowered me. We say with Naomi, I know my name means pleasant, but I don't even want to hear my name because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I'm changing my name tomorrow, which means bitter because bitterness from the hand of God. That's my story. We say with Job, I don't care what none of y'all say. I need to talk to God because God did this. God is the one afflicting me. And in each and every one of those cases, there's a sense in which they're right because this passage is true. But the thing is that God never sends suffering out of sheer cruelty, but still in, 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 in company with his hesed love. Hesed is this, this Hebrew word that, depending on your translation, your Bible may tend to translate it steadfast love or love or mercy. But it refers to God's steadfast love, his kindness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, his compassion. All of these things are kind of wrapped up into that one word, hesed. And it's, it's like the sum and substance of God's covenant faithfulness and his covenant character. And it's this sort of love that moves God to act unselfishly for our benefit. We think of this love in the context of, of, of relationships with one another. We think of this love in the context of healthy marriages where the spouse is sacrificed sacrificially or they love sacrificially for one another. Or parents who lay their lives and their preferences and their, their money down for the good of their children and all these types of situations. But I, my love for my wife now... One time is, I don't think she's watching. <laughs> but she would agree that I do afflict her. But that affliction is probably not a part of the Hesed love. It's not on purpose, right? We don't expect Hesed covenant faithfulness, love, and compassion to lead to our affliction because that's not what it does. But with God, his Hesed love is, is unpredictable sometimes. 
right? And we don't understand how could this God who loves me with this Hesed love that it says is higher than the heavens are above the earth. How could this God afflict us? And yet at the same time, it's this Hesed love that assures us that no matter what God does to us, he is always acting out of love. He's always acting out of kindness. And let me say this this morning because there may be some of us who, who forget this. And when God smacks us with affliction, we're convinced that he's punishing us. We're convinced that, that he is judging us for some sin we've committed or for some suffering we've suffered and that we're so unclean that God is, is effectively casting us out of his presence. But if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you need to know that all God has for you is Hesed love. If, you, if, if God's heart was a, a safe and you were to crack the code and look inside of that safe, what would come spilling out of that safe would be Hesed love. There's not one ounce of wrath or displeasure or hatred or anger. None of that is in God's heart. If you're believing in Christ because all of the wrath and displeasure that you deserve, God put on Jesus on the cross. And when you are united with Christ by faith in his blood, you receive all the delight and the pleasure that Jesus earned by his faithful obedience. And so all God really does have for you is Hesed love. That's it. And it's that Hesed love that tells us that what God is doing for me is out of love. But it's also that Hesed love that the psalmist can appeal to and say, I'm going to praise you for your Hesed love, but because I know you love me and you have compassion on me, you need to get me out of here. Because you love me, don't you, God? Why would you put me to shame by not saving me? Why would you leave me here for my enemies to win and to consume me? That Hesed love both sustains us and sends us to God to appeal to him. But even though this may be an unsatisfactory reality for us, let me ask you this. What's the alternative? Because if it's not this God of Hesed love who has, as the kids say, the whole world in his hands, if it's not him, then it's one of two realities. It's your enemies or somebody out there, or worse, it's the product of random chance. Those are the options that we have. It's obvious that we're not in control because if we were in control, we wouldn't be suffering. And so it must be someone else. And if I got to put my life in somebody else's hands, they're just as powerless as me. Or worse, they're my enemies and they're very interested in my suffering. But still worse in a society that, that at best has God at a safe distance. If God's not intervening in our lives, because we don't like that language. We don't like to hear God actively getting in and mixing it up. If God's not intervening, then that means just things are just happening by random chance. And that means I can find no meaning and no hope for deliverance. There's nothing I can base my hope for deliverance on. People always say things are going to work out for good, right? Everything happens for a reason. But it's like without God, you can't say that because there is no reason. There is no guarantee that things will work out for the good because you're the, the things are left to the product of chance. We could say we know things are going to work out for good because we know our God is an author who is writing a story. And though I might be in the middle of the story, God has no unfinished works. He finishes all of them. And the story is going to end up in one place. And I just ain't there yet. 
So we know that everything's going to work out for good because our lives are in his hands. But if our lives are not in his hands and if our suffering is not taking place under the umbrella of his sovereignty, then we have no hope. We're just stuck. But God is the one who sends us into the storm. And if he's the one who sends us into the storm, he's also the one who saves us from the storm and makes the storm serve his purposes. Just as God's providence was at work on all those layers and here in the story of Joseph, it's true in your life too. God's, at, God's providence and his sovereignty is at work in you. Nothing makes us more ready for heaven than the sour taste life on this earth leaves. And some of you are here this morning like, I don't know that I identify with that. But as my pops always say, keep getting up in the morning. You will not have to look for suffering. Suffering is like kids with stay-at-home moms when they're looking for them. They will find you. (laughs) It's coming. But God is the one who's at work in that. And as we suffer, we begin to long for heaven. And as we suffer, we recognize that there's nothing that we can go to that serves as a, a, a sufficient anchor for our souls. We recognize that people disappoint us all the time, and so it's no use in putting our trust and our hope in them. We recognize not only that, but the people who don't disappoint us can't change our circumstances, and so it's no point in putting our hope and our trust in them. We recognize that this body breaks down, and so we can crossfit and and kettlebell and and keto all we want, but we can't put hope and trust in this life. If COVID has shown us anything, it's shown us that. God's providence is at work within us, but God's providence is also at work through us and around us. I can almost guarantee that there are people who you are more willing and ready to serve because of what you've gone through and what you are going through. I think of a sister at Four Oaks East who is faithfully serving her husband. And I know that the people who are in her house and the people who witness her faithfulness serving her husband are getting a picture of what the love of Jesus looks like. because of her. And if she wasn't suffering, if her husband wasn't suffering in those ways, there would be a picture of Jesus that those people would not be seeing. So somebody is receiving love and compassion and people are getting pictures of Jesus. And because people are getting pictures of Jesus, now that suffering not only has personal significance and social and local significance, but also significance in salvation history. Because now we got witnessing going on. Think about the story of Joseph, the, the, the cupbearer and the baker and Potiphar's, and Potiphar's wife. None of them would have heard of the goodness and the power of, Jacob, of Joseph's God if Joseph had not been sent into slavery. And I imagine that there are people who are witnessing the power of God at work in you and hear the power of God through you as you testify to his faithfulness to hold you fast. And they wouldn't have heard that testimony had you not been sent to the suffering that God has sent you into. So God really does have an aim in our affliction. You know who knows this more deeply than anyone? Jesus. More than anyone, Jesus knows that God had an aim in his affliction. Jesus, like Joseph, was betrayed by his people into the hands of Rome when they crucified him. And this wasn't the first time that they victimized him. And Jesus... Didn't just, he wasn't just tempted. He, Hebrews 2 tells us that he suffered when he was tempted. 
and that God was using his suffering to make him a fitting pioneer for our salvation. And Jesus knew as he hung on the cross that it was the Jews who betrayed him there and that it was Rome putting the nails in his hand and in his feet. But he appeals to none of them. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He acknowledges that it is God who is at work while he is hanging there on the cross. But just as Joseph's suffering preserved life, Jesus' suffering on the cross preserved life and life more abundantly. Because through that suffering, he dealt with sin and death down to the very bottom. And because of that, we get to experience and enjoy life with him and life through him. So you not only have significance in your suffering, but you have a sympathizing Savior who sits with you and sustains you in the midst of that suffering. So believe that God loves you. And because God loves you, he is using your suffering for your good and that you're going to see his kindness in the long run. And Jesus is the great proof of that reality. And your soul will have a titanium foundation that will be immovable in dark times. And so if God has an aim in our affliction, what happens when this aim is achieved? Right? That's what we begin to see through the rest of this passage, and I'll move a little bit more quickly. First, we see that God's plan ends in both peace and preservation. Right? So in light of what Joseph is, all that's happened to Joseph and what Joseph tells his brothers, he says, go tell dad everything that's happened. Get all your people, get all your possessions, come back and be with me, come to Goshen, and I'll look out for you and make sure you're taken care of. And as all this has been going on, it seems like word has traveled back to Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh hears it, and he basically tells him the same thing. Go home, take whatever you need, bring these wagons, bring your little ones, your wives, your father, and all of y'all come back, and we're going to take care of you. You can live in the best part of Egypt. And this text is all the more wonderful when we consider how it began. It began as a story of outright hostility and alienation. From jump, we hear that the brothers pretty much hate Joseph. Off rip. It begins with a permanent rift in the family. From the beginning, Joseph is estranged. He, he, he's not just estranged. He's literally a stranger in a foreign land. That's how distant the family is from one another. But that was just the beginning of the story. And sometimes when we get in these hard situations, the beginning of the story and the middle of the story, they begin to seem like the whole story. There's a book uh, I read recently called When the Stars Disappear on, on Suffering in the Christian Life. And that, that, the idea for the title comes from how in, in ancient times people used the stars for navigation, right? So you leave and you're looking at the stars, you're charting the stars to let you know you're going in the right way and that you're going to arrive at your proper destination. But what happens when you're on the sea and a hurricane comes and the hurricane is blasting you for several days? And the sky now is dark and you can't see the stars. You don't know if you're going the right direction and you don't know if you're going to arrive at your desired destination. And that's kind of what happens when storms come in our lives, we lose kind of all sense of direction and all we see around us is the storm. It feels like all we have is this relational hostility. All we have is this hurting body that needs healing. All we have is this wound from deep loss. And we don't feel like we'll arrive at any peace. Not relational peace, not bodily peace, not emotional and spiritual peace. I imagine Joseph felt like that. I mean, he's going through this for over a decade. At some point, it probably felt like, man, I'm, I, get, 
pumped up just to get beat down. Father loves me, I get sold into slavery. I get to Potiphar's house, I get falsely accusing and thrown in prison. I get to prison and meet some people who are supposed to help me get out, and then they forget about me. Over and over and over again. But this was not the destination. This was not the end of God's story. The alienation, the hostility that led to Joseph being sold into slavery, they were not the end of God's story. We are getting the end of the story of Joseph towards the end, the climax, the resolution. And we see that the story doesn't end in hostility, but in peace. God's goal was not for the brothers to stay alienated from one another. But it ended in peace and reconciliation. That's the destination. God delights in peace and he loves to see us love. And so I know it's a lot going on in the culture right now. And if you're on Twitter, you probably just should get off. Um, It's not a fun place all the time. You know what I'm saying? With the exception of like the Charger Block account. But even he's getting a little too, uh, I don't know if y'all know about Rick Shap, Charger Block. Makes me laugh. Um, But it's just a rough time right now, right? But I promise you, we are not at the end of the story in the American church. We're not at the end of the story in the Floridian church. We're not at the end of the story of the church in Tallahassee. Our story does not end in hostility. It ends in peace. You ask me how I know. I know because he, Jesus himself, is our peace. And he has made the two one, reconciling us in one body to God. And through him, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. And I know because I, 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 got, I got a newsletter from the new creation called the Book of Revelation. And it told me that one day we will all be around the throne, worshiping the one who sits on the throne and worshiping the Lamb, singing a new song together. And so our story is not over just yet. And there was not only peace, but there was also preservation. God provided for Jacob's immediate need and the family's immediate need by providing for them in the midst of this famine. But God has also been preserving Joseph this whole time. The reason Joseph's brothers thought that he was going to die in the Egyptian slave market is because when you sell somebody into Egyptian slavery, they work you to death. And so they just knew he was dead because it's like there's no way he survived, but he survived slavery. He survived when Potiphar's wife accused him of trying to rape her, which probably should have gotten him killed. He survived the prison system. God has been preserving him the entire time. And one thing that we sometimes forget as we are in the midst of suffering is the fact that we are still in the midst of suffering means we're still here. And even though sometimes being in the midst of that suffering leads us to be upset with God, it's better for us to be upset with God than not even thinking about him at all. The very fact that we have, we are still Godward in our emotion. Is the, it shows that God is still holding us fast. God preserves us in the midst of our suffering. And I can't promise you what preservation will look like. Here, preservation for them means favor in the midst of a famine, and they get to live off the fat of the land. But I can't promise you that that's what's going to happen. But what I can promise you is, as the song said, he will hold us fast. I can promise you that. And when God's plan for our pain serves its purpose, you will be safe. It's spiritual safety, meaning we are safe in Christ. But it's also physical safety, meaning nothing is going to happen that God don't want to happen. I can promise you that. And it means that God will provide all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So if you ain't got it yet, if you ain't got what you need yet, I promise you, if you need it, God is going to give it. 
His plan for us always ends in preservation and peace. And we know this ultimately because his plan will reach its resolution when Jesus comes in the new creation, where all we will know is renewal and reconciliation. But God's providence also, second point, uplifts the perpetrator and the prey. We see this towards the end of the story, and really when we recount what has happened in the whole story. So the sons of Israel do what Pharaoh and Joseph tell them to do. They go back, say, Dad, Jacob, Joseph is alive, and he wants us to come back and live with him. And it says that Joseph, uh, Jacob's heart became numb. Describes a sort of emotional paralysis that comes from persistent hopelessness. I can't blame him because Jacob has been disappointed over and over and over again at this point. He's tired of hoping. Hope hurts when it leads to disappointment. And Jacob has decided he don't want to hurt no more. And so this news was too good to be true for him. But the donkeys and the gifts arrive, and then he sees the, the wagons, and he's like, he's probably like, there's no way Joseph could love me and think that I'm going to walk all the way to Egypt. Old man that I am, that ain't happening. But he sees the wagons. And he's oh, Joseph really is alive. And it says his spirit revived. And this is not the main point. This is a word for some of us who may be dealing with others and trying to love on people who are suffering. Sometimes we see hearts that are numb, hearts soaking in the sea of discouragement. And our instinct is to throw a life raft out and say, get out of discouragement. Stop being discouraged. It makes me uncomfortable. Stop lamenting. You lamented long enough, right? Like Job's friends did. That's not what happens here. It's not the brother saying, dad, you're our dad. You're setting a bad example for us. Stop moping around. They don't, that's not what gets his spirits to revive. It's when Joseph sees the signs that Joseph, or Jacob sees the signs that Joseph's actually alive. That's when his spirits revive. And so what we, what we need to do is not try to pull someone out of that place of, of a numb heart. But what we need to do is to help them. We need to be their eyes, looking for signs of God's grace and God's renewal in their life. Because it's hard to see when you're suffering those signs sometimes. Hard to see them. So we look for them. And we bring those signs to them. And in due time, their hearts will revive and their spirits will revive. But I can't help noticing how at the end of this story, both the betrayers and the betrayed enjoy the same blessing in the end. Joseph was the prey. His brothers were the perpetrators. But at the end, all of them live in Egypt and all of them enjoy the fat of the land together. And this is exactly how God works. God doesn't just exalt the oppressed to a place of dignity and security like he did for Joseph. But because God's gracious, God refuses to let the sins of Jacob's son define their lives. He brought them low. He convicted them of their sin all the way from chapters 42 to 44. It seems like God's been doing that. But in the end, he elevates them from their humiliation just as he elevated Joseph from his victimhood. This means whether you are seen as an oppressor or you are, an, you are the oppressed, whether you have been an abuser or you are the victim of being abused, God will make sure that neither your sin nor your suffering have the final say in your status. That's what happens here from the family. I, I think this is good news for a culture that's ready to cancel people at the drop of a hat. If you are seen and if you do something that is abusive and it is exposed, that is it for you. 
You cannot rewrite your story. Propaganda has an album called Crimson Chord. And the theme of that album is that God doesn't necessarily rewrite stories. He redeems them. There's a song on there called Redeem, Such a Fortunate Failure is Tossed into the Sea of Forgetfulness. Redeem, redeem. Helpless to change our past, but great was Elohim to redeem, redeem. And that's what God does. Whether you have been guilty or whether you have been the victim, either way, you can enjoy God and his blessing with the people who you have victimized. Do you see that here? The person who was victimized is enjoying the blessing with the people who sinned against him. That's what God's providence can bring about, and we can see it in our relationships. Maybe you're the guilty spouse in that marriage. But the good news this morning is that through God's providence, you can enjoy peace and reconciliation and the bounty of the land together again with your beloved. Maybe you are the one who's been slandering. Maybe you're the one who did wrong. Maybe you're the person who badmouthed somebody at work. You can enjoy peace with the person you sinned against because of God's providence. And we see this most clearly in the gospel. After all, we are the guilty party. We are the offenders. J.H. Bobbing in a collection of essays called Between the Beginning and the End constantly does this parallel between the story of Jesus and the rebellion of Adam and how what happens to Jesus is basically what any of us would do when God comes near to us and said, I want to be your king. I, well, not it's, I want to be your king. I actually am the king. And we, just like Joseph's brothers betrayed him, we betray the God who has given us every good and every perfect gift. We betray him and we say, God, if you try to assert your dominion over me, I'll kill you. Because that's exactly what happened. Jesus came saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that he was that king. And what happened? We killed him. But just as the brothers were convicted and humiliated, so were we. When the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see how we've offended God and how we really are worthy to be discarded and thrown away, God elevates us from that low place of humiliation, not so that he might lord himself over us in some sort of uh, uh, second-class citizenship, but he says, I want you to enjoy the fruits of the new creation with me. I want us to be reconciled and for us to enjoy the fat of the land together. Jesus was our prey, victim to our rebellion. And our sin, it would put him on the cross. We are the perpetrators, but in the end of the day, God has exalted us and uplifted us so that now, even now, we sit at God's right hand with Jesus. And one day in the new creation, we will live with him and enjoy life together. This is the end of the story that God intends for our suffering. Peace, preservation, restoration, and reconciliation. All of our suffering, no matter how significant or insignificant, all of it is is leading there. That's where his story is taking us. God has an aim in our suffering. And when it gets there, when when it finally reaches its target, you'll know that his hesed love has seen you to and through 
your suffering. Let's pray.